Welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the lives of working canines and handlers. We achieve this mission by speaking to the authentic and inspiring voices of the working canine community and by manufacturing high-quality tactical canine equipment from the Gold Coast of Australia. Check us out at www.origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. Um, currently recording from San Diego on the west coast of the US. Um, my guest today is Eric Innes from Coastline Canine. Eric is a former Army Ranger and canine handler, um, and he obviously works for Coastline Canine now. So, welcome, Eric. How you going? Oh, thank you for having me on. Well, good, my man. Um, yeah, so we're just going through the Everyone listening, we're just going through the website talking about some products and yeah, that. So, yeah. um, mate, so dude, for my for the Aussie audience, mm-hmm. and we've we've got a few Yanks as well, a few Americans that listen. Um, give us like the real brief sort of rundown, like who you are, and then I want to do a bit of a rewind and ask about growing up and then getting into the military and stuff. Okay. Well, first off, I'll start off with that. I'm the tallest man alive. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so so I'm Eric Ennis. Um, I'm the owner and head trainer at Coastline Canine based in um, the Florida and USA. And so uh, we do anything from pet dogs to service dogs to um, we have a deliverable for full-on family protection dogs and a program for that for our clientele. And uh, so my background... Uh, if we were to rewind back a little bit, is uh, like you mentioned in the introduction, uh, former Army Ranger uh, with time overseas. And then um, from there, got super lucky, volunteered, and ended up uh, being a young dog trainer for the Navy SEAL program. And then uh, went on to South America to do some dog training there. And then the typical shooting instructor for a little bit. And uh, then I end up, you know, starting my company out of necessity. Awesome, bro. Alrighty, man. Mate, so we'll, let's rewind a little bit. So I want to go, um, and I'll ask you a bit more about the, the ranger sure, stuff sure. in a minute and explain who rangers are and whatnot. Um, but like, give us the, the real brief sort of rundown about growing oh, up. Cool. And what led you to join the military? Okay, great question. So, you know, I was young. Um, obviously, that's a that's a given. So when I was growing up, um, my dad was in the – both my parents were in the military. And so when I was really young, um, you know, my parents got together. And then my mom was in – both my parents were in the Air Force. And then when 9-11 happened – uh, my dad was actually going through special forces, uh, Q course or qualification course when nine 11 happened. And, um, and so that I got to see and just hear stories about him going through selection a little bit when he's, you know, back in between courses and family time and whatnot. And he wanted me to go to the, the special forces selection, you know, so I was kind of toying with that from from middle school to high school and going into their x-ray program, which is 
you know, right out the gate off the street, you're a young gun and you go through selection, which is a new program that they opened up because the war was hot and heavy at that time. Well, I, I was getting stories when he came back that a lot of the, the 18 x-ray um, studs would fail often because they had zero life experience, zero leadership qualities, right? And they're 17, 18 year olds going off the, off the street, right out of high school and going through a, you know, a regular selection like that. And so, um, where you need some, a little bit of experience, some maturity and some, uh, you know, some grit to you. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to, that deterred me a little bit because I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to go that route, let me maybe put a little bit of experience under my belt before I go through that selection. And that's when I started looking at um, the Army Ranger program and selection. And what really sparked it was when the movie Black Hawk Down came out. Um, I mean, that's very, you know, it's nostalgic for a lot of people, but, um, and it's yeah. kind of cliche, but when that came out and I, and I saw what they were doing, and I up until that time, after Saving Private Ryan, like that was probably the most authentic type of combat or or battle uh, film out at that time. And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna do that. And so I read I read the book actually, Black Hawk Down, until I had to duct tape the book together, like, and I was and I was a kid <laughs> and I was just reading, and I'm like, wow, like how graphic they were talking about, you know, their engagements and battles with the Somalians. And so that like really motivated me. Well, fast forward, you know, a few years and I'm almost done with high school and uh, I was going to get my um, uh, Eagle Scout basically accolade, right? We have, we have Boy Scouts in the U.S. And so um, I was going to get that and which I ended up getting. But one of the things that my dad was saying was like, okay, well, if you're not going to go right into the selection program, you should just go to college and then go to ROTC, go to, you know, the U.S. Military Academy and go to West Point. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do that. Well, I... Is that like... Off what's that? So yeah. ROTC, is that... Yeah, like it's like an officer school, but the, the military has different academies. So like the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy have college academies. When you come out, you're an officer, right? But it's specifically, that's all... It's not like a regular college. It's a military college. So it was, it's very prestigious right here in the States. And so I got accepted for that, just being a sports leadership in, in high school and then Eagle Scout and then, you know, good accolades and academics. And so I got accepted to go to West Point. Um, but the war was going on and I was like, man, if I go to college for four years, I might miss the boat. Right, because at that time when I joined, when I joined the military, it was 2006, and so I was like, "Oh, it's it's hot and heavy, right? It's all over the news," and so I was like, "I might miss the war," and so I was like, "I can always go back to college," and so I changed my mind when I was in high school, and, or when I was a senior in high school, and my parents were pissed because I went and signed a contract to go to uh, Army Ranger selection. and so they took away my car, my like graduation car, everything. They, they got pissed. Because because what? I got accepted to a very, very hard college and academy, and I turned it down to yeah. go to an enlisted selection. <laughs> so, was your dad, were your parents officers? No, they weren't officers, but, you know, most parents want, want you to, you know, in their mind to do better than they did or, or whatever, right? 
<clears throat> and so yeah. I turned down that and I went enlisted, you know, and, uh, and went to Ranger selection. So that's kind of how, that's kind of how I, um, got, you know, in the position to go into the Ranger regiment was right out the gate. I signed a contract to go to that selection, you know, go to, go to army basic and then airborne school, you know, jump school, and then right into, um, what is called RIP, which is back then it was the Ranger indoctrination program, which is just four weeks of who's going to quit. Right. Um, now it's called RASP. And so there's four weeks of who's going to quit, but then there's four weeks of, well, let me train you up before you actually get to your unit. Right. You know, shooting and night vision and stuff like that. And before it was just a gut check for four weeks straight. And so, um, that's kind of the background of, how I ended up, you know, leaving high school and going into Ranger Regiment, which I made it, I made it first time, um, through the unit, uh, through the selection in January, the end of January of 2007. So it was a little bit of a longer, a longer way to get there just because we ran into some hiccups and snags with logistical timing of, uh, graduations in schools because I ran into what's what's called like a holiday break and so when I I graduated basic training went right into airborne school jump school finished jump school but jump school ended like right around the holidays so like your Thanksgiving your Christmas all of that and so they weren't running any new selection classes because you know people get leave and stuff like that and so I I got to um, basically the pre-selection hold, uh, like a day, the day they were starting the last class of the year. So lucky me, I had to do uh, basically two or three months of pre-selection grind and get beat down until selection, which is not normal. Normally, it's like you graduate jump school, and the next day you sign in, and then you take a PT test, and then normally it's like, that next day, right, everybody's lining up for manifest to go into selection. Well, that was not my case. And so I basically had to, you know, everybody in my class had to uh, stick it out for two or three months of beat down before the selection. And so, you know, how that works is literally just from sun up until when cadre were done, it's like standing in formation you know, in the winter with no snivel gear and just uh, either re reading handbooks or you're standing at attention or parade rest until somebody moves and then you're getting smoked and until people start quitting. And yeah, so that was for two or three months before January 4th, which was selection <laughs> dark, uh, day. And we, we lost a lot of people just in that. And so, um, and then I started, started my career in the Ranger Regiment, um, you know, once I graduated that. So you were just like stuck in this yeah. admin yes. Google loop. Yeah, which is, so there was, yeah, sorry. No, ahead. yeah. So you, so we were stuck in this, basically it's called, um, it was called rip hold. So you have normally there's a class going on and then you have the hold which is basically in preparation for the class right behind it and it's normally people are only there for like a day two days like three days 
usually like max and then they just roll right into the selection because that's how the jump school is timed the problem is is we hit it when everybody the last class already started and so there was no other class until january and it's like the end of it's like mid-october or something like that and so all the other cadre that were not um doing the selection class they basically just had free reign to basically try to weed you out before the class date on January. So it's two or three, two or three months in the winter of just getting smoked to weed out the class for January. Yeah. So, yeah. so what what was the do you know like the what the percentage was like half? Or? Oh no, it was it was dropping like flies all the time. Like I, so <clears throat> it's hard to explain like from a percentage wise from that point because. A lot of people, because the war was still going on, and people were just like, oh, F this. I'm just going to try to go to a unit. I'm not going to hang around for, like, a few months. And before I even, what if, you know, what if I get hurt? What if I do this? And so people would just bow out and say, send me to this unit because at least they're prepping to deploy most likely. And so people would have, like, that mindset. And in my head, I'm like, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. So good luck with that, right? Like, you're, you're already the wrong guy. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's just a smoke fest. So I know when I started, when we started our class, January 4th, I think the number was like 321 is, uh, what we started for the PT test. So like that you have to enter with a PT test on day one, right. To continue to day two and then to really be enrolled in the class. Um, so we started with 321 on day day zero, basically, uh, January 4th or 5th. And by graduation, four weeks later, we graduated 64. So wow. you can imagine that attrition from 321 to 64 graduates. That's yeah. like, what's that? I'm going to match. Yeah, like a, what's that? 270 dropouts, something like that. No, no, yeah. no, like 200, 260 dropouts. Yeah. So that was the attrition for uh, that winter class. So it was, it was spicy for sure. Um, yeah, and, and I think a lot of people just got beat down because, you know, they basically had a pre-selection for two months prior to the actual selection. And the selection was, you can imagine, it's January, right? Like, it's a winter selection. And at that time, like you were wearing your basic uniform, you know, t-shirt, pants, top, like there's no snivel gear there's no, there's no warm, warm clothes. And, uh, you're just violently shaking and hoping the sun goes down because eventually the sun will come back up and you're one day closer. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Dude, the, the cold's a different beast, man. Like, my selection course that I did for um, mm-hmm. my unit was in summer. Oh, yeah. So it was, you know, it was hot. Yeah. But we're here in San Diego going for walks along the beach. And I know that they've got mm-hmm. the Muds mm-hmm. class starting in like a hell week, in a week yep. or two. And I was like, man, fuck that. Yeah, the cold <laughs> is a different beast. And... Sweat, sweating yeah, and man. staying hydrated is one thing. But... Uh, bone, like bone cold and wind 
is a totally different beast, you know, um, yeah. and especially when you're not dressed for it. So it's like the element really kicks your butt. And uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people go basically, you know, borderline hypothermic and, you know, and all of this jazz or, or they just, uh, they just mentally can't take being miserable because the, the difference I think with heat and cold is that the cold, I feel like in your brain, you cannot track time when it's cold. So it just feels like it's forever, you know, like you're shivering or whatever it's still pitch black it's cold it's windy and you cannot perceive time and so what you think is like wow it's been three hours no it's been it's been one hour and 15 minutes you know <laughs> yeah. so yeah so rain so you've done selection yeah you've whittled probably whittled down even more from the 60 odd that you had yeah. What's the next step from selection once you pass? Yeah, selection? so once you go through selection, um, you get there's there's three there was three ranger battalions at the time, and all of them are in conflict. So they're on a rotation of one's deployed, one just got back, and one's in the middle of training cycle. Right, like that's how it would be, and it's literally like one one steps off the battlefield, the other one stepping on the battlefield. Right, so at the time for when I graduated selection. The unit that I got sent to was at the flagpole, so 3rd Ranger Battalion in, in Georgia, and they had um, they had just left. So some guys went on a mid-rotator bird as brand new guys over there, and then, uh, but we, like uh, where I was, um, the company that I got sent to, we didn't, so then <clears throat> not on top of on top of the three months of basically getting beat down and then a month of selection, I'm like in four months of basically trying to survive. And then I get to the unit and then I'm in survival mode again because all of the rear D NCOs that didn't deploy and they're all pissed off that they didn't deploy. I got three months of just getting new guy hashed with me and the rest of the guys that graduated and it's never ending because they are breaking you down so that hopefully you quit before your platoon gets back and you get onboarded with them. So I had like a really long time of once once jump school hit, I was, you know, those three months, then selections were at month four, and then basically another three months of being uh not even not even having a squad leader yet and just getting dished by all of the rear D NCOs for three months and they got to take out their aggression on us because they weren't, they weren't deployed and everybody else was. And then those three months, I finally was new guy day zero, right? <laughs> like in the platoon. Yeah. And so it, it was a, it was a long road until I hit day zero new guy, like put into my squad Right. And so um, I like to think that it was definitely the hard road and it was definitely the scenic <laughs> route. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that kind of uh, molded me in, in my brain into if I can endure, um, you know, five, six, almost six months of getting smashed by 
Ranger Battalion before my day zero started, then I guess I'm game for whatever. <laughs> so yeah, and, and you know, if you you might have felt like you'd earned it a bit more too, like you'd earned, you'd be like, I fucking yeah, you do. Until day zero starts and you question everything all over again because now you have to, now it's not the cadre you have to prove yourself to, and it's not the rear DNCOs you have to prove you to. It's now it's like your team leader, your squad leader, your platoon sergeant, and like they don't care that you just went through six months because some guy also didn't go through six months, and some guy only went through, you know, graduated jump school, rolled two days into selection. And so, and then he's in the exact same spot you're at, which is day zero. And so it's almost like, uh, the, the five months of getting beat down was not, was not about proving that you belong there as much. It is proving to yourself in your brain that you can handle whatever's going to get thrown at you because that's a whole different, it's, it's four or five months of selection that the other guy didn't have to do. Right, just because of scheduling and logistics, and that's that's the way the cards fell. So, yeah, you, you, uh, how it works in the, that organization is you're you're like most special operations select, um, organizations. You're kind of you're kind of in this uh, um, almost like a probationary period, where until you end up going to like a ranger school, which is completely different than selection. That's just a army leadership school where you get the little tab on your shoulder um, until you get sent to that later on in your career, then you're still probationary. And so that, or yeah. So it's not like you made it through selection. Like here's your bags, here's your locker, here's your squad. Like you earned it. It's not like that in that organization you get there and it's like the smallest thing and you could be gone tomorrow. And that's how that organization runs. So I've seen guys, you know, show up, show up a minute late to a formation. Bye. They're in the regular army now, right? I've seen them. They mess up. Uh, they mess up some type of uniform, right? Like uniform check or something like that. Bye. They're no longer in the organization. They're in the regular military, and so that's one of the only units in the military that can. You breathe wrong. Bye. You can go to the regular army. And they don't shuffle you around as much. Like, okay, you're just going to go to a different platoon or you're going to do this or it's, nope, you're going to go to the regular. And so that's what makes that organization um, almost almost cannibalistic and very, very, very alpha male-ish. Like, um, I have to be better than you because I'm not going home today, right? So that yeah. that's how, and so it's a little catch-22, you know? But you, you're a new guy, you know, running around with your head cut off and always trying to prove yourself and always trying to minimize the, the damage that you put or the, the attention you attract to yourself because you could be gone tomorrow. And, um, and so I did that for um, one, training, one training cycle, an entire deployment to Iraq, and then another training cycle. And then I got my opportunity to go to uh, Ranger School to get my short tab. Um, and that's when you kind of, you start becoming more varsity, right? Because now you've gone through that, that weed out process too. And so that, that, that weed out process for that organization is if you can't pass basically 
the Army's premier leadership school, then you cannot be a leader in a special operations organization. And so they use that to weed you out too, right? Um, and so if you, if you get med-rolled or if you get uh, kicked out of that school or you fail or you withdraw, then your bags are pretty much packed for you at the unit by the time you get back. So, Bryce, that, that's a funny one for me to hear because in Australia, you'll do your training. Mm-hmm. It's very linear. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you guys sort of move around and you chop and change and there's this school and that school. In Australia, you do basic training, infantry training, go to your mm-hmm. unit, you qualify, done. And then you can specialize and mm-hmm. whatever. Special operations, you apply for it, you do selection, you do your reinforcement cycle, you're in the unit. You've got your Green Beret, yeah. your Sandy Beret, whatever. So when you say you did two deployments, then you went to Ranger School. So I did, like, so I did a full training cycle, a deployment to Iraq, yeah. and then another full training cycle. And then when my platoon ripped out to go to uh, Iraq again, I stayed back and they sent me to Ranger School. So... Right. And Ranger School is like, there's basically almost like two selections inside Ranger Regiment. One is the selection to get there. And then the next one is the selection to keep you as a, as an NCO for the future, which you have to pass the Army's Ranger School to do that. And uh, so there's some like gates. And so until you do that, the pressure's on, right? Fully. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if you've, you know, had X amount of deployments. It doesn't matter, you know, how many guys you killed. It doesn't matter. It's like you got to get through those two floodgates. And then it's like, okay, let's start grooming you for leadership, right? And then really specializing you. Um, and so and until then, it's like, very, you know, it's very stressful. It's very dog-eat-dog um, so that's a long time. So, I mean, that, that took me, I want to say from, from the time, uh, that took me the better part of a year and a half of basically being on probation, which is a long time too. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I took the scenic route <laughs> in, in special operations, but hey. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of how that organization works, right? Shit. So what was your experience like on that first deployment then, not being, not having gone to ranger school? So, I mean, when I, when yeah. I say experience, I mean, like, yes, I want to know a bit about yep. the, the combat and the mm-hmm. type of operations, but like culturally as well, what's going on there? With yeah, you? so culturally when that first deployment, you're, liter- you're, you're pretty much like, for lack of better terms, you're like the coffee runner, right? Because, yeah, you did an entire training cycle, but... You haven't been proven, and you're still a probationary, so you're doing everything like uh, you know you're getting stuff prepped, you know batteries, vehicles checked. You're getting lunch for the boys, like you're get like you're going to the chat hall and you're running them food and stuff like that, and then uh, you're you're doing all that that stuff, okay? Um, so that was my experience, which was which was kind of. Um, hard to wrap around because I at on that deployment I was very immature right so like all I could think about was well uh I trying to find what little time I had to relieve any stress <laughs> and you know calling back home if I could or stuff like that and so 
uh, I would get in trouble a lot because sometimes I, I would miss my windows for like gate guard shift and and walking the hajis around so that they can clean the porta potties and stuff like that. Like that's a lot of the stuff you're doing as a new guy, right? You're waking up in the middle yeah. of the day for the trucks to come through and clean all the porta potties, and you're you're holding guard even in special operations. So somebody's got to do it, right? Um, and so, but it was very stressful, not even from a combat perspective, but just the fact of it's new, right? It's your first, it's your first deployment. You don't know how it works as many times as they kind of explain to you what's going to happen. Not really, right? Like you don't know until you got some, you got some experience under your belt. Um, but as soon as I hit the ground in Iraq, uh, I had a little bit of a different path. My platoon was pretty full, like, it, you know, plussed up man-wise. And so they sent me to go augment on a, uh, a CSAR team, so a combat search and rescue team. And so what we did was basically it was a handful of rangers from different platoons, mainly new guys. And we would fly around in, in Blackhawks and follow, um, you know, follow Delta Force around. So in case any planes go down, then there was a immediate... Uh, gun presence on the ground to secure the helicopter sites. And so I did that for first few months. And so, uh, or no, like the first, the first two months of the deployment. And so that was really cool seeing, uh, seeing Iraq from, from a whole different point of view, um, you know, flying around a lot in the country, daytime, nighttime, you know, I got some funny stories and stuff like that, but that was, that was pretty cool. Um, and so, you know, as a new guy, you're, you're responsible for, you know, making sure everything is ready to go, whether it's speedball ammo, whether it's med supplies, you know, in case a bird goes down, you're flying in and securing, like Black Hawk Down, right? That, that's the purpose of that whole, that whole piece is yeah. because they're flying around all the time, right? Doing vehicle interdictions or catching people in the middle of the day when they're, you know, their intel comes up and snatch and grabs. And so all the time beeper goes off, boom, flight deck, everything on, taken off, right? And so that was very interesting as a as a new guy. And then, um, you know, once I got back to my unit after that, you know, then, then I had a few missions on the ground and driving strikers and stuff like that. But I thought I thought it would be almost like Call of Duty-esque because my first, my first mission – we leave the wire, we take off from the base in Iraq. We just cross over the you know, the barbed wire and the towers of the base in Iraq and it's nighttime and so we lift off and clear and all of a sudden it's like RPG we go by, right? And I'm like Alright. I guess this game off like I you know, I thought this was like an everyday occurrence. And so I you know, ended up not necessarily being like that, but bright eyed and bushy tail is as a, uh, you know, as a 19 year old, you know, um, so that was, that was really interesting. So, you know, for, first deployment, Iraq, uh, to Baghdad and we were working side by side with the, uh, SEAL teams. And so the joke, the joke is that, um, we are collaborated with the SEAL teams in Baghdad so that the Rangers could teach them how to fight in the city. <laughs> so that was like, that was like the joke, you know? Um, but it's kind of true. So, <laughs> you know, um, so that was kind of like a little bit of a picture, but that, that experience as a new guy really, 
really shaped me of, um, hey, I have to be an adult. Like, we're not in, uh, you know, there's stuff in the, there's stuff on a deployment where you have to be self-sufficient. And there's no more like, what do I do? Like, oh, should I go put batteries in things? Should I go do this? Should I go do that? Right? And uh, yeah, so that, that was a big learning curve for me. You know, first deployment right yes. right in Iraq at 19 years old. Um, you know, I just <clears throat> had a lot of selection prep, but selection selection and, and, and all that stuff isn't necessarily about teaching, right? And, and just getting smoked. It's more about is quit in your vocabulary, you know? So that whole thing prepped me basically that mindset, but I feel like... Uh, Training cycle taught taught me some, but I was I think I was more scared about getting kicked out of the unit than I was actually like being good at my job. Right? If that makes sense, it was more about risk mitigation yeah. than it was like yeah being good. Right? It's like how do I not get kicked out versus like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna legitimate be I'm gonna up my up my game, right? And so. You know, that was always, I looking back now, um, from the maturity aspect, that's, that's something that I kind of, I realize now that I'm older, but in the beginning, it's literally fight or flight survival mode. Don't get kicked out of the unit, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. so, so when you were, if you were working with the seals, mm -hmm. working with the, the CAG or the Delta guys, um, and I know, I'm pretty sure you stayed range. Yeah, I stayed, yeah, which is, um. It's not common either because it's so easy to get kicked out. And so um, I left on my own terms, like finished my entire, you know, I was there for, I was in that organization and, and my whole military time, it was six years. So it was hot and heavy from 2006 to 2012. And so five yeah. tours, one, the first one Iraq and then four to Afghanistan. Uh, and I missed one because I was in ranger school. And so my whole time I was in range regiment in that organization and uh, I survived and fulfilled my contract until, uh, till it was time to leave because I felt like, uh, the presidential administration was not very cooperative and I didn't want to enlist more into, uh, cause Obama got reelected and there was a whole bunch of stuff, which we probably get into later in the podcast. But I was like, I don't, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze at this point. So, yeah. yeah. So if you were exposed to Delta and SEALs and whatnot early in your mm -hmm. career, was there any particular reason you didn't decide to go that way? Yeah. So, um, just... so what I wanted to do was, um, you know, I, I guess everybody says this, but this was an actual goal of mine is I wanted to go into um, Delta support to be a canine handler because um, I've seen them and, and, um, and stuff like that and working around them. You know, I wanted to do it at that level, but what happened just naturally is that through those deployments, my, my first wife were friends she was friends, you know, you, you create a little community with, uh, multiple friends of mine that had been killed, right. That got killed over the years. And so that took a toll on her. That took a toll on me. And I was like, at that, at that time, um, when it was time for reenlistment at the end of my time there, 
was like, if I re-enlist, then I'm going to go there. Right? Like I'm, I'm going to prep and I'm going to go make that move and go to that selection. And so in my relationship, my, you know, my wife, my first wife, she was like, if you do that, then we're done. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should count my blessings. I'm still alive. Right. Like, uh, you know, cause other friends you, at that time, uh, if you stayed long enough, your chances of rolling snake eyes was high. Right. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I thought maybe, okay, maybe this is, maybe this halftime should be, you know, maybe I should hang it up for the sense of, you know, I already went through a lot. And so maybe I'm gambling at this point. Does that make sense? And so that's why I ended up not doing that. And I went the civilian route and then on to where I'm at now. Yeah. So I think, I mean, we'll get yeah. to that in a, in a minute, but I think that's probably the smart choice, mate. Like, you know, five, five trips in a pretty decent yeah. unit, you know, loss of the marriage, obviously, eventually. Yeah. Um, I think you've done the right thing, yeah. mate, because you hear to tell your story, right? And you never know, like, you could have maybe not. For sure, there. for sure. Yeah. So, um, Let's dial it back again. So we've got the the first deployment to Iraq. You come back. You've missed the second one to mm-hmm. Iraq because yeah, you're in school. school. Yeah. So um, give me give me the lowdown on on the canine handling. Are you a canine handler at this point? No. So, so my last two tours is when I went to the selection for that specialized part in the unit. Um, okay. So at this time, um, I went to Ranger School. I passed. You know, I passed Ranger School. Um, you know, I got back, my unit was still deployed. And so I was just waiting. And now the tables turned a little bit where I was the I was the guy thrashing the new guys when they were on rear D because the unit was gone. Um, but that's when you finally start going like, you know, you, you start getting a little bit of props because now you've you've showed that you can hang. Right. And uh, it's not full bore like, oh, wide open arms type of deal. Like, uh, it's more like, okay, you pass the bare minimum. <laughs> Give yourself a pat on the back, right? That's that's the expectation. If that wasn't the expectation, then you wouldn't be here. So it's more like a, just a check, check the box type of deal. Um, yeah. But just at that time, now you have, you still have almost like minions or guys that, are following up your trail. And so now you can kind of delegate and you, you, you're starting to get a little bit of responsibility with onesies and twosies. And you tell this Joe, now, now you're in charge of these two Joes, right? You're prepping the new guys for when they come in. Now that's your job. But, uh, yeah, we did, we did that training cycle. Um, you know, I had my tab at that point and we were prepping for Afghanistan, which was different because the unit had been, Iraq heavy because Afghanistan was like asleep at that time, right? There, it, was, yeah. it was almost like dead right after, right after the initial invasion. Like nothing was going on after that whole, you know, campaign. Right after nine um, eleven, and so Tora Bora and all that, and so it was very sleepy. But the the spring, the the spring uprising in Iraq was heavy, so the unit had didn't like you know, five trips back to back to back to back, you know, to Iraq. And so we switched over in 2000 and, um, 2009 to prep to go to Afghanistan. That's when Afghanistan kicked back up. Right. Um, and so at that time 
I was now a saw gunner, so uh, you know your your automatic gun. And so for us, I don't know if you guys have the same, but basically, basically yeah, we call the saw. You're a gunner at that uh, point. You're a saw gunner, automatic weapons gunner. And so, which is kind of funny because I always thought that uh, in my head, I think that the big tall guys should get those guns, but nope, the small guy. And I was like, I was like one of the smallest guys in the unit. I, I'm only five foot five, right? Like when you look at pictures of me and you're like, wow, everybody's like almost six foot and Eric looks out of place. <laughs> so, um, and so I, I carried, I carried that and, uh, that was eye opening and doing, you're not doing, you're not doing hits where you're running out, out of a, out of an up armored vehicle and running 50 feet to somebody's front door and clearing the house. This is like, you're walking kilometers, right? And so you had to prep for that. We, yeah, we yeah. prepped for that, that training cycle and then that deployment. Um, and so we got sent to Southern, uh, Southern Afghanistan. So we got sent to Helmand province. Um, Ooh, yep. So I went, we went there in the summer and we had to create our whole target deck, uh, but that was right at the time that the U.S. Marines were making their really big push, which was like basically they walked from like the left side of the country to the right side of the company or country. It was like all over the news where they're just literally walking almost like in line, like you're picking up ammo at the range pretty much. And they did a whole sweeping operation for a while. Uh, and so we were at the spearhead of that. So it's very interesting because that was literally the tip of the spear, like the front line of that whole invasion then we were there it's yeah so it's very interesting um you know our accommodations in iraq were very like they were already built up you know you know people got xbox you got chow halls you got stuff like that but when we went to afghanistan it was like there's no water like your your sleep your your whole squads you know two squads are sleeping in tents you know um stuff like that and so that was very interesting to me, you know, just, just a new, it's a new war zone. So, um, that deployment, I got into probably the worst firefight of my life. Uh, I lost my best friend. He was shot next to me. Um, and so it was a, it was a six hour daytime raid that we, we walked six kilometers in and we got compromised. Um, and so it I don't think, and most of most of my peers can agree, it wasn't a very well thought out plan by Headshed, but they were just trying to be proactive and get like a, a top level guy that they that they jumped the gun without having the logistics and support in place in order to execute it. Does that make sense? So it was like, hey, we're gonna do this, but we're not gonna have all the sexy Gucci stuff. It is what it is. Well, it just left us yeah. exposed. So we normally, we weren't in the habit of doing daytime, a lot of daytime operations. The advantage is not there. So the regular military did, but special operations usually doesn't. Unless it's like in and out, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. But uh, so we we did a hit and uh, we got compromised and we end up, our platoon fight, fought a whole village for six hours. Like you would like you would think in Black Hawk Down, like the whole village, right? And so, um, you know, we got put in the, survived a close ambush. 
basically like a 25 meter close ambush. Um, Jesus. Yeah, it was a. There's a book that's writ that's in it, and um, it's called Reaper 33. And then there's another book named uh, that's after my friend that died. Um, yeah. And so that talks about it. I might have it over here. Let me grab it. Yeah, that we're um. Let me see if it's uh, over here. Okay. Oh, the Reaper. So you'll find my name in this book. Um, there's some operations in here. Um, it's called the Reaper, right? It's from one of our snipers. I was in the unit, uh, Nick Irving. Oh, he's a black dude. Yeah, right? yeah. Nick Irving was our sniper. Yeah. Seen that guy? Yeah. yeah. So he was um, he was my sniper. Um, in my company and then in that operation unit. And so in this book, you'll see photos of photos of the operation, right? You'll see it if you ever pick up this book. And uh, there's like a picture of, you know, my best friend wounded and I'm in there picking up the Skedco and stuff like that. And you'll find my name in here uh, a few times. And so, yeah. uh, yes, yeah, so my best friend, uh, Ben Cop. You know, he was he was uh, wounded in that close ambush. He took three rounds to the, basically to the knee, and he was all good until you know the story and and kind of his story, which is really amazing. If I can kind of like segue off to it, is that uh, he was he was my he was my best friend, my roommate, whole thing, like through selection, whole nine in the barracks, lived together, whole nine. So, but we were on that operation, and on the way back. We saved the sniper team. So Nick Irving uh, and the recce team, they put themselves in a bad position. At night, they thought they were in a good defilade. But when the sun came up, they found themselves surrounded 360. And what they thought was a good defilade was like no cover at all. Exposed, yeah. Yeah, exposed. And so they started getting uh, uh, direct sniper fire from multiple snipers. And so they had to call in. And so my squad, um, the squad that I was in, we got called to go and rescue them because the other three squads were also in their own individual ticks spread out, spread out across the grid square. And uh, so we went and did that. And on the way back, after collecting them, we had to go the route that we went. And as you know, that's normally like not ideal. And so, but we had to go that way because they called an Alamo. So all the, all the elements sucked back into a building and basically fight out of that building. And uh, on our way back, there was a haystack in the middle of the field that we didn't really recognize. Like, didn't think nothing of it, but a, uh, a enemy was hiding in that haystack and opened up on us from like 25 meters, fully automatic AK. And, uh, and so struck my friend, um, so he stabilized and it took us like mm, probably an hour to get out of that situation into the compound because we are pinned down by uh, multiple snipers, Chechen, Chechen snipers. And, uh, yeah, and then the helos wouldn't come in because it was a hot, right? It was hot LZ and, you know, firefight going on. So anyways, he ended up getting airlifted afterwards. <clears throat> Our platoon leader got shot. A sniper got shot in the foot. And then he had gotten shot all in that whole skirmish. And uh, they airlifted them out. But when he landed, 
his body had been in trauma. You know, one of his, where the femoral artery breaks off, that had gotten compromised and nicked. And so when he landed, he went into cardiac arrest and they went to go put the fibrillation paddles on him. But the batteries were dead. So then they had to manually do it. uh, And then they had to cut him open with a chest saw and then manually do it with their hand to pump him, pump his heart. So they got his heart activated. But the problem was, is that entire time he was supposed to be on 100% O2 with nasal cannulas and a face thing. And they didn't turn it on. So he's only on room air. And so he brain dead. And uh, so that's, that's how he died. Uh, so yeah. Um, and then, but he was an organ donor. And so there's like more, you know, stories that come out of it. Um, so yeah, so that deployment hit hard. And after, after that, uh, mission, I flew back to bury him. Right. And so my mission, my, my deployment was over for that one. And so, um, after that, uh, I then got pulled for the next training cycle. I was basically a anti-tank rocket launcher dude, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so I carried around a, I don't know if you guys have it, but it's called a Carl, Carl Gustav. And so, 84, yeah, 84 millimeter recoilless. And so that was my gig. And they just started that back up. And, uh, excuse me. There we go. <clears throat> so we hadn't used it for a while. Because there wasn't much usage in, like, Iraq, really. But taking out positions from, like, mountaintop to mountaintop and different stuff like that, it was advantageous. So we started spinning up that group in our platoon. And so I got selected to be a team leader for that. And I lugged that thing around and jumped it and everything all the all training cycle. And the thing is about as tall as I am. And so I, I would jump it and it would catch wind and I would end up upside down because it just catches all the aerodynamic. It's not aerodynamic. And so, um, yeah, uh, so I did that. And then that deployment was, was one of my most fun deployments because we went to a, we went to, uh, Fab Sharana, which is Northeast Afghanistan on the Pakistan border. And that's mountainous. And so, mm-hmm. Through that, we had a lot more, um, we had some skirmishes, and that's the first time that the Carl Gustav was used since, like, the initial invasion. And so I had the opportunity um, to uh, throw some rounds at, like, a lot of dudes, and so that was super cool. Um, were they, were they, are we talking, like, heat rounds, like direct yeah, hits, or were you airbursts? Yeah, so, so the, well... All three rounds that I chose, um, so I ended up firing it three times at deployment, but it, it's uh, two of them were close proximity, like like fifty meters, right? And uh, yeah, and so that that was a kind of a cool story. I almost died, but um, so we do we do a, a hit, a simultaneous hit with CAG, and so they hit the house, but we were watching on ISR platform that. There was like, there was like thirty four packs in the wood line, right outside of, right outside of like the compound, and the Taliban was hiding in the wood line, and sleeping there and not in the house, right? And so we had flown 
a platform above and they shot an RPG at it. So we knew that they were armed we could, you know, we could see it on ISR. And so we're like, okay, those dudes have guns. And so what CAG did is they hit the building while the Rangers hit the wood line. And so it was the most, it was, it was probably the most satisfying graphic thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I really thought it was like Call of Duty. And I'm like, this is, this is some big boy shit. So we literally got off the, running off the back of the Chinook, off the Helos, and as we are running off, uh, AC-130 is throwing um, 120 mic into the wood line that we are running to that's only like 200 meters away. And so you're running off the back of this Helo, right, and you're watching big rounds come from you know, the C-130 in the sky and hitting and just blowing everything up while you're running towards it, right? Nice. And so, and CAG is sprinting past you to the building and you're like, you're going directly to where the mayhem is. And so, you know, everything lights up under night vision, under nods and like every sparkle, every explosion. And it was just pure, pure Call of Duty chaos. And so it was super, it was super cool. And uh, I led out to the wood line because they were like, if we get engaged, then it's automatically throw rockets at it first. And so yeah. uh, I walked point with my buddy. And, um, and so we sat, we sat right outside the wood line. And basically the goal was push through the wood line and kill anything that's left from, that's still alive from the AC-130. Right? <clears throat> and so to initiate the walk in line into the bush because it was crop field and into a bush, into a wood line. And so, um, I fired the, the 84 millimeter air burst into the wood line. And, uh, so I fired one round and the handheld mortar team next to me, they were supposed to also simultaneously fire around. Um, but the, the bop, right? It's called the bop or just the concussion from the 84 millimeter. Like it confused their AG. And so he thought that they shot around. And so he went to go load another one and it was about to double stuff the tube. And, uh, a team leader from like behind me tackled them, but it was like the platoon sergeant, them and myself. And he was, he was putting the second round into the tube, right? And he literally football tackled him to prevent that because he saw he noticed that they didn't fire the first round that he already put in there. You know, it's a, it's a kid. You know what I mean? It's his first deployment, and he's doing that. And so, um, and it's a sixty. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, a sixty. Yeah, it's a sixty. And so um, he thought that the trigger man or the gunner had already thumped it, but it was really the bop from my Carl G that he felt. Right. And so that's why he went to go load another one. And so that would have killed us all right there, but he got tackled. And, uh, then I threw another, another round in there. Uh, so that was pretty, that was pretty exciting. It's almost like one of those training things where like the rocket or the AT4 or the law or whatever it is, is going to initiate the ambush. You know, like you do that in training all the time. Right. And that was an actual thing. So, so that was fun. And then, uh, yeah, my buddy I was walking point with, they, they walked through the wood line. Uh, they started shooting, you know, shooting anybody that they came across. And uh, he shot a dude, and uh, the guy was holding a frag and dropped it, and he got scored with frag. 
And, uh, you know, I, I always laughed at that story because he came back out limping and I was a secondary medic on the team because I had just gotten my like EMT intermediate license right before that. And so he had like a fat old dip in, he's limping and hobbling, right? His legs are all bloody. And you know, the first thing he's like, he wants me to check his manhood and make sure it's still there. Right. And I'm like, yep. And so it's like one of those, it's like, uh, the age old, you know, am I still good? Right. Like, and so, uh, yep, you're good, dude. <laughs> and so, uh, so that was, that was super cool. Um, yeah. And then we got back and, um, and then another one, we, we, um, uh, Delta Force got messed up on a, on a daytime breakfast, basically a breakfast pager went off. They rolled out, they landed at a Taliban party in the middle of nowhere and they stacked on the walls and they just got fragged from inside, right? Like, and so they got fragged. And so we got spun up immediately after, and we flew in Chinooks to go, um, to go interdict like two squatter, squirters running in a wadi. And, uh, we got in position you know, two high side, like you imagine a, a wadi, which is a dry riverbed for those people that don't know. And it's like, this one was like probably 25 feet deep, but it was all dry. And so it, it was like a miniature canyon. And so you had guys on one left side of the canyon, the right side of the canyon. And then I was walking in the middle with my, with my new Joe, who was 18 years old. Right. And he's like, he's the guy carrying the rounds for me. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, we took contact and one of our snipers got shot a few times in the arm and then we took contact and the guy was just spraying down the middle. Well, with already being in a close ambush before, I just pinned myself to like a canyon wall, but my Joe didn't. He just like laid down in the prone and I'm looking at him Ooh. and it's daytime and I'm just seeing rounds like saving Private Ryan hitting the ground around him, you know, kicking up dirt and he's looking at me like, Corporal, like, <laughs> what do I do? And I'm like, you know, I'm cursing at him, like, get the bleeping, bleeping over here, right? Like, but I just thought, honestly, I thought he was going to look at me and, like, lift his head and say something and be dumb, you know, poof. And so, um, so anyways, we, we get out of that, like, really bad fatal funnel. And that was, like, the first time that I exercised my kind of, like, specialty without any authorization, and so I just ran where I thought the guy was and he was sucked in inside the canyon wall and shooting out of it. And, um, and so I literally just got on the net and I'm like, this is my call sign and this is what I'm doing. <laughs> like, this is a call sign, uh, air burst going out. Right. And then all of it here is Roger, I'll be advised air burst. Going. And so like, I didn't ask nobody and I'm not, I'm not high ranking, but I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. And so, uh, they let me do it. And so I shot it. The problem is, is that it went way too far because I was going off of, uh, the information that I was getting from the guys that were like closest and their information was like, Oh, 100 meters, 11 o'clock, you know, in the wall, like, and they're having a shootout. And so I'm like, Oh, I'll just airburst it over that area. Right. Well, the dude wasn't a hundred meters the dude was a hundred feet. Right. So, so my round like sailed, sailed super long. Uh, and so I was like, Oh, I'm going to do a second one. 
and I got called off because what they did was they literally brought an Apache probably like 15 meters off of the deck and they just main cannon him and like you can see the gunner like they 15 meters off the ground and just pop 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 and then they peeled off and so that was like super cool like you could almost like grab onto the tire and fly away so yeah yeah that uh and so that deployment was that that deployment was fun um unfortunately as of like a few days ago the platoon sergeant on that deployment he uh he committed suicide actually and so um Mate, I, did. I saw that yeah i've seen that rounds in the social media yeah so that was uh that was my platoon sergeant for that deployment and um so yeah so, so we carried on through that deployment and then after that deployment that's when i went to the dog section and so, because I wanted to go do, I wanted to go be in snipers because snipers were killing everybody. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I want to get, I want to get my kill on. And so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do snipers. And so I put my name in the hat and ended up, there was one, there was one opportunity, but a more tenured guy got it. So a more tenured guy got the slot and he failed, which pissed me off. But, <laughs> right. And so I didn't get the slot, but the head of the uh, canine unit had like seen me and been in the company and seen me work around. And he's like, why don't you try out for the dogs? And I was like, that's what, cool. I, I didn't even, I didn't even want to per se. Like I just knew playing chess, being a, being a rocket launcher dude or being an infantry guy uh, is not very practical if I get out. And so I was like, but being like a designated defensive marksman or something like that, a specialty. And so that's why I was going to go like, try to do something more, more special, right, per se. But then dogs came up and uh, we got back and they invited me to um, uh, dog selection, basically, which is, are you afraid of the dog? Like, do you have some mental acuity? Like, can you understand what's happening? Uh, if you're in the bite suit, does that trip you out? Stuff like that, right? Um, and then PT, you know, PT tests and stuff like that. And so I made it and then went to um, went to a school in the U.S. that at the time, the special operations from multiple units would go there. And that's called Von Lick Kennels in Indiana. Cool. And uh, so I, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I got my dog. And, but my dog was already a veteran. He had already been on uh, two or three deployments at that time. Well, um, and he was a Malinois Shepherd mix. And uh, his name was Rex. Um, it's actually pretty, pretty cool. This, uh, they made this like a canine handler leader, like handbook thing. And so, oh, cool, um, for, you know, just different TTPs and, like, different medical stuff. And, you know, that's my dog, you know, right there. And awesome. uh, Is that you? Is no, that so that's handler? that's the previous handler. And, um, but this guy is me. I know if it's just doing audio, they can't see, but. Um, uh, well, you'll, all these photos will be up, mate. Yeah. So that that's me, um, you know, and my dog. And so that was our, that was our first deployment together. And so. We were in Kandahar proper at that time. And so that was the following deployment where I was a dog guy. And so after dog school, then you go to advanced where you're, you're doing CQB, kilo ops and, and stuff like that with the dogs. 
And then, um, you know, that was, that was a cool trip. Go to Southern Afghanistan, the worst place on earth, basically, and walk point. <laughs> like, you know, that was, that was, that was it. And so by that time it was my fourth deployment. And, um, you want to talk about a, a, a butthole pa- uh, factor, like that was that deployment, you know, it's summertime, yeah. summertime in Kandahar in Southern Afghanistan, like the ground is fresh, you know, like they can, um, you're more, things. yeah, you're more afraid about the ground than anything else. And, uh, you know, as a dog guy, then I walk point, like even, even ahead of anyone else. So it was basically me and we would, we would choose our routes together, me and the EOD. And then that's, that's what the platoon would follow. And, uh, so it was really good. We, we so- did. Uh, I was just going to ask you, what was the, the primary role of the dog? So obviously, if you're point, there's mm-hmm. some sort of detection element. Yeah, so it's detection, uh, detection in route, detection on site, and uh, and then also pre-hit. And then your job as a dog guy is to catch squirters, so anybody running off the objective. And then also, um, you know, prop uh, property or compound where your dog is clearing and engaging whatever it runs into before the assault force goes into it, or with the assault force. And so okay, a multi-purpose so it's a, dog. Oh, awesome. yeah, yeah. yeah, so multi-purpose, so explosive detection, and then man dog. So um, apprehension dog. And so um, that, was a, that was a super cool deployment that I probably saw the second most action on that one. And I think by proxy is being in the mix and being up front. Right, every everything happens when you're up front, and uh, so I mean that that was that was the first time that um, I personally like I was personally engaging like with my rifle, like dedicated, you know, on enemy combatants with the dog on my side because I'm up front, right, and so. Um, you know, that's a unique experience. You get a lot of people who do uh, tactical dog training or like, but they've, they've never had engagements with dogs on their hips, right? And they've never uh, deployed their dog to engage someone. Um, and so I think that's, there's a lot of trainers out there that's like that. Not to throw shade, but it's, uh, it's all theory until you actually do it pretty much. And so that deployment was a lot of that. And, uh, I'm, I'm super happy because one, it was, it was July, you know, uh, July and the worst IED place on earth. And we were the team to do it. And, um, we didn't step or set off anything and nobody got hurt that trip. And so that, that brings me fulfilled as, as you know, everybody's relying on you as the dog guy. Like, do we go left? Do we go right? Like, do we go through this or do we bypass it? Right. And so, um, that was super fulfilling. 10 or 11 thereabouts. What's that? What year was that? About 10. Oh, that was, uh, 2010. Yeah. And that was like IED central. central. Yep. Southern Afghanistan, Kandahar and Homan province was like IED at, at that point getting really smart and they started making IEDs like out of wood and stuff that metal detectors wouldn't find and booby traps made out of like 
fishing wire and stuff like that. Uh, I had lost, I had lost my friend at the, at the end of, mm, no, the deployment right before that, at the end of my previous deployment. And he, um, he was in a different platoon, but I went through selection with him and he was walking point man as a team leader and he moved a branch out of his way, uh, at night walking in between compound walls, moved a branch and it was booby trap, blew him up and they blew him up and over a compound. Like they couldn't find him for a while. Um, killed him and his gunner behind him and his gunner behind him was only, you know, 18 year old kid. First deployment. Yeah. And, uh, that's the most stuff, man. It is like, and you know, all the deaths are tragic, but like the young dudes, man. Yeah, they just don't have a chance, you know. They don't, no, they don't yeah, because they're just, you know, naturally they're just following their leadership and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah. So the uh, um, Nicole and Rapoon, like those were their last names. And so my friend was uh, Nicole, and I went through selection with him. My my selection class, even though we lost like sixty four. I mean, we graduated 64. I think we lost uh, four or five. And so that's like almost 10% out of that class, you know, over the years. Yeah, over, just, from, just from my selection class. And um, so the first K-9 deployment really opened my eyes. You know, the, I was the, not knowing what to expect and then having a lot of weight on your shoulders and walking point, right? You're more like... I was actually still young and dumb, you know, because I'm like, oh, well, anybody outside of EOD, like nobody else knows what they're looking like for, for IEDs, except for me. You know, I thought I like had some knowledge. And so I'm the idiot going around like poking at stuff. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, it's like, hey, I'm up here because, you know, at at least, at least uh, if it goes off on me, then the other 35 dudes like don't have to deal with it. You know what I mean? I was, I was dumb at that time. And I'm like, what's this cord lead to in the dirt, <laughs> right? And I'm just doing some dumb stuff like that, right? Um, yeah, it, it, yeah it, it didn't help because EOD is wired like the same way. And they're just like, what's this, right? Just, you know, you got to be, you got to be interesting to be an EOD tech. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, I did some uh, Karez, going down Karez's with like, no helmet, no rifle, and a pistol, right? Like, because I'm like the smallest dude, so I was doing some rat tunneling with yeah, the EOD guy, and so uh, that that trip was fun. What's that? You get much action in in those carezes? In the no, little... no, a lot of them were like just dry holes, but we had to go check them out because we had find suicide vests and stuff buried in different parts of the the, the target and stuff like that, and we want to make sure that nobody. Um, did that, but I know a lot of units that did daytime operations, they would get into, into ticks and fights in those carezes, but not so much at nighttime for us because, yeah. you know, I think, I think it was equally hard for, for, you know, the enemy to use pitch black, dark carezes in the middle of the night, you know, so we didn't have a lot of those, but in the daytime I knew it was, it was a thing. Um, that's yeah. where they would go. Um, so yeah, we, we got out of that, that deployment scot-free um and so that was that was really fun but you know i I didn't know what to expect as a canine handler so i'm bringing all this like stuff that i have never used (laughs) like like my kit was like all weirded out like man i gotta 
I'm basically an infantry dude, right? Walking point, and then I got to carry all this dog stuff. And so, like, you didn't really like figure it out yet. And then, but yeah. my second deployment, though, I was, I was running pretty slim and pretty slick, and I knew like what I needed, what I didn't need, um, and stuff like that. So, so yeah. with, with your first dog deployment, what sort of um, and I'm, I'm hinting at some more stories here. Okay. What sort of job are you guys doing for you with, with the dogs? So, like. Um, any particular notable engagements for you and Rex? Um, not until my second second deployment, which is it's got a few cool stories in there. Um, so the first one was really um, that that was my first uh, mano imano like one on one enemy combatant. Um, prior to that, it's like, hey, ten dudes are shooting at the same guy. You know what I mean? Like everybody's getting licks in. Um, but this was a that deployment was the first time, like, it's me or you, buddy, like, when it comes to the enemy. And so, the, you know, the story goes like this, is that right outside the, right outside the FOB, that we were going after a guy who was um, planning a dump truck vehicle-borne ID into the front gate that we got whim of. And so from that compound, you could see the base. Like, you could see the base lights. You know, that's how close it was put it this way, like from the time of like liftoff to the time of infill was like a three minute flight time. Right. <laughs> so it's like right outside the, the base in uh, Kandahar. And, um, we knew that on ISR, we saw a campfire outside the compound and then we saw like roving guards, but no weapons on the ISR platform. So like we just see it's, wow, it's weird. It's, you know, it's 10 PM at night and, there's three guys roaming around outside the property, almost looking like a sentry. And so, and there's a campfire, so they're going to be outside, right? And so I, I knew this, and I was walking point. So how how we work essentially, or like how I did it was I'd be first off the ramp because if I'm walking point, right? And so ramp goes down, we land, it's a total brownout. You can't see your face in front of you because it's summer moon dust. So I run off and I start running, but I know that we landed like 50 meters from the front door. And I'm like, if I keep running, I last remember on ISR, there's like three dudes outside. So like, I'm viable to run into somebody. So, and I can't see, or I'm going to run into the door, like one of the two. And so whatever reason, my internal dialogue was like, stop running and take a knee. So I stopped running and I took a knee because I couldn't see anything. And when you got the rotors, it's it's still loud even though you got Peltors on or whatever. Yeah? And so I was like, if if we're taking fire, I would not know, right? Because that's how like, <laughs> close we are, right? And so I was like, I took a knee. And when I took a knee, I was right next to this like little tree, with, like a little bit of cover. And I was like, oh, this is – okay, cool. Like the – the helos took off and like the dust started to settle <clears throat> and then 20 feet past that tree was the front side breach right with the with the main entrance and there was a figure in the doorway right up front and i was the first one there and so the brownout is starting to settle and everybody else is man dash sprinting up and i see a little more um 
and then I use my laser, like blood, to be able to see. And I just see, like, he's got this linear object in his hands, basically, you know, pointed 45 degrees to, yeah. He, you know, he's in a low ready. And I'm like, is it a rifle? Is it not a rifle? And I'm like, oh, that's that's a rifle, right? And so um, as soon as an element to my right, like, moved into their position, he shifted his rifle and started pointing it, like, up. And, I mean... I'm I'm staring at this guy, but just trying to get all the intel because he doesn't know where I'm at, and I'm only 20 feet from him. Like he doesn't know because it's still brown out, and he don't have night vision, right? And so he moves this thing like four inches up into the left, like not not very much, obviously. And so he's gonna go and engage at the team that's running to my right, his left. And so then I just I smoke him and drop him where he stands, and. Uh, and so, Wait, that, that was, so, so my so, rounds were dead center because I didn't want to take the chance of like, like, yeah, I could have took him in the head, but I didn't want to be that guy that like I initiated <laughs> contact and I missed because I was trying to aim for the head, <laughs> right? So, so you know, training, right? Center mass, and so, <laughs> so it was it was actually pretty cool because my first round, uh, after checking everything, but the first round dropped him. And he, he like twin, you know, 9-11 twin tower, tower demolition, like fell down onto his Nothing ankles crazy. and feet. Yeah. And I've never seen that before, right? Like normally you see like people running, they get shot and then they like dirt dive or whatever it is. But I had shot him and he literally just, I don't know, vertically stacked himself like all the way to the ground, like doing a demolition of a building. I've never seen that before. So anyway, so, so I put some rounds of no masses going down and uh, a second dude comes out of the door, but in a split second, I see this guy, no, he, there's no weapon ID. Like he's running and there's nothing in his hands. Now, could he have been a suicide bomber? Yes. But like a split second, like I don't engage him. And then the one second I don't engage him as he's coming 30 dudes open up on them, <laughs> mow, <laughs> mow them down because they they heard me initiate contact, but they didn't see the guy because he fell so fast. So they're just thinking there's gunfire, and then they see rabbit moving. You know what I mean? They see movement. And so I'm like, in a split second, I'm like, oh, no positive identification. I'm morally correct. And then everybody else kills them. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> like, all right. You know? <laughs> All running suppressed, were you? Yeah, uh, no, not everybody, but I was because of the dog, right? That was, yeah. That's kind of, uh, and I still do it to this day, right? I, I run suppressed around the dogs. Um, so that was very interesting, and and uh, but that 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 mission actually is what kind of made me want to not reenlist, and it's not because I engaged the guy; it's because of what happened afterwards. Is that we exploit the target and we find out that the guy, that guy was a bad guy, but he was a protection detail for the, for the Afghan um, local police general and the local police general just so happened to be at the target that we were hitting and we didn't know it. And they were having tea together. So our presumption is that the 
that the Afghan police general was going to like facilitate or look the other way for this guy to go do that thing. Right? They were having tea together. So I had killed the, I basically killed the bodyguard. Right? And, um, but what was, what creeped me, what was interesting is that he didn't have an AK, he had a, he had a, a M16. Right? And we were like, what is this? Like, you know, it's, we, we didn't have the full story. I'm like, Taliban's got M16s now, right? <laughs> like, right? And, uh, but after that mission, um, after that mission, I actually got like investigated because, because it was the general's bodyguard. They're basically like, did you just kill this guy because you saw a weapon or what happened? And so they took the buttstock from the weapon and they brought it back and like, uh, a, a CSI, you know, the, the military's version of like investigation dude had me like recreate how I engaged this guy and from what angle. And he wanted to make sure that the bullet hole in the buttstock matched my story, right? And the angle and trajectory of it, because basically if it was like flat, then it would be, he never raised his rifle. But if it was like the round was at a, at an angle that I described, you know, the bolt hole through it, then he raised his rifle, which checked out, right? Like at this point, I'm a professional, like, and so, um, and so I'm sitting here as a, as an NCO in a special operations unit. I'm like on my fourth deployment and I'm really, I'm getting grilled on whether, like, did I murder this guy or not? And I'm like, is this really, is this real life? Like, is this happening? <laughs> like, you're you're taking a stick and you're putting in the hole and checking, like, investigatory trajectory on a bad guy that we just killed on a target that was going to blow up the front gate of the base. Like, That's whose tough. side are you on? You know what I mean? And that really checked me. I was like, I'm doing my job. And you're over here trying to see if, like, you have a way to put me in jail. Right? Like, I'm... <laughs> So that really like checked me at that time. And that's when I knew because the administration, it was, it was Obama's like first term and they were trying to figure out relations with the Taliban and stuff like that. And they wanted us to do less night raids and all this other stuff. And I was like, dude, this is trippy. Right. And so, um, that, that put a lot of question in my head of like, Hey, when it comes to time to reenlist, is the juice worth the squeeze? Are they going to back? Yeah. Yeah, it's the juice worth the squeeze here. And so, um, yeah, so we we ended that, that deployment, you know, you know, multi-missions later, but that was a good one. I mean, even if, like, hypothetically you shot him and he still had his weapon at the low ready, he gives a shit. You're on yeah. target. Yeah. Bad dude. You, yeah, if you, if you got a, a special operations team that landed on your front yard and you walk outside with a rifle... Like, this is Afghanistan, so this is, like, nine years after the invasion. Like, you, you should know what's up and, like, what – you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's not like we snuck in from, like, 10 kilometers. We literally landed on the X, like, on your front door. And if you don't, if you don't understand, like, two, two military helicopters in the middle of the night that land 50 feet from the front door, right? Like, and you're walking out with a weapon – uh, I don't know how you can mistake that. Like, so and it's like um, 
I think a lot of people confuse what the military does with what the police do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there's, you know, to, to a degree, you don't have to go through some of the same checks and balances that the police potentially do. Right. They're right. all about de-escalation, you know, and, and avoiding conflict, but that's not what a special operations team is there for. Right. Exactly. So um, those stuff got started getting like kind of pushed on us, and then um, you know, then the next the next deployment, which was my second deployment as a dog guy, um, you know, that's when I was able to like. Uh, utilize and employ my dog for some live live bites and stuff like that and get some awards for that so the that last appointment was in um, back in Sharana in the mountainous area by Pakistan and um, that one was cold that was a winter deployment and uh, right in the middle of the winter and um, if you ever wanted to know what going in basically what you think or imagine is like the Himalayas and when you get off the ramp of a bird and you sneak it's the middle of the night on a mountaintop and you you jump off the ramp and you land in waist deep snow in the pitch black like that's what it is like and it's like in my head I'm like that's what like selection prepares you for right mm-hmm. and and then you have to do an infill and your legs you want to quit right and the wind is howling and it's pitch black and cause you know, cause you have this, you have this, uh, you have to make decisions, right? Even when it comes to clothing for, for our listeners, it's like when you're doing an op like that in the middle of the winter and you have to walk, okay. You also can't wear stuff to keep you warm because you're going to sweat to death, right? If you're wearing a whole bunch of snowball gear, but you, so you, but then you run the risk of, well, if you don't wear anything, it's freezing. And when you stop, stop moving, you have no warm gear. So you get caught in this, like, what's the worst, what's, what's the, what is it? What is the, um, what's the term? discomfort? Yeah. Out? Yeah. Which, which side of the discomfort do you want to be on? Do you want to be cold and dry or do you want to be hot and sweaty and then freeze? Because you're sweaty, right? And so I remember, you know, some of those ops, you're, you're jumping in waist-high snow and, like, your dog, you can't see your dog because your dog is, like, snow-angeled into the snow and it has to, like, jump out and back into the next one and it's on your hip. And yeah, then you got to go, yeah, you got to go up. You got to fight up, right, to this, like, remote village on this mountaintop. And so that was that, that was that deployment. A lot of, uh, a lot of that and, um... And, uh, so that was, that deployment was super cool. It wasn't so much, you're not worried about IEDs because the ground is frozen. It's rock hard. It's ice, you know, it's black ice and, um, they're not out digging and and doing stuff like that. Um, and plus everybody knows by now it's like in the winter, you know, they used all their funds up fighting and, you know, all their drugs and funds fighting in the summer. And the winter is more about like surviving until the springtime, but. They're still like kind of prepping and doing their logistics for the spring, spring fighting. And so, um, that deployment, uh, you know, I was able to get, you know, some accolades for, uh, you know, one mission we, we flew in and, uh, our target was actually the mosque in the middle of the town. But when we flew and landed, it was a ghost town and we hit the mosque and then we had a follow on 
from the mosque. We found a whole bunch of weapons inside their mosque and I balled up a whole bunch of dudes. And then there was a follow-on and we found in some shallow carezes, uh, suicide vests and stuff like that. And so when we landed at the dog guy, I'm typically walking point, but what happened was we get a radio call while in the air while we're in the helicopter and that there's two sprinters or squirters or runners from the objective to two different parts of the town. And I was a little too cocky, I get because of my fifth deployment, you know, and I'm a dog guy and I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> I'm just going to go try and find action and get into trouble. <laughs> And so uh, I landed and I took off sprinting without anyone uh, in the direction of the, um, you know, the IR designated sparkle in the sky that they're like, hey, the squirter is over here. I'm just following this Death Star beam, at, you know, and pitch black in the middle of this village. Well, everybody's going to do that. I just ran that way because I knew I was, I was probably chasing someone, which means I get to use my dog. And, uh, and so, so I'm now- running it. And at, until this point? Uh, no, because everything was just like engagements. Right? So you're like, looking for that fight? Yeah. So, so the the one that I killed the my first like mono e mono like you versus me. There's no one else. I was uh, I was going to get a bite on that mission because a squirter ran, but the problem is is that um, I chose to do a detection problem instead of going after the squirter because on pre like pre planning, there was a, there was a broken, basically a broken point in the wall. And in my head as a dog guy, I'm like, well, that's, that's a very easy path of travel. And there was a heat signature on it, like in the ground next to it. And so I was like, well, I'm going to check that. Right, like that's going to be my priority once we land. Like I'm going to check that space to see if that thing is rigged or booby trapped there. And so, even though I was getting called to do the squirter, like in my head I chose that because if I left that to go get a bite and somebody stepped on that, yeah, and blew up, I'm like, it's kind of selfish on my point. You know what I mean? When the original plan was to stick to that plan, and so instead they brought in a they brought in a little bird. And that guy stopped moving because they, they flew like 10 feet above him and dropped a nine banger on him and it scared <laughs> the shit. It scared the shit out of him. So he stopped moving and then like they, end, you know, the team ended up rolling up on top of him and just balling him up. But he was like hiding in grape, grape groves that was like 10 foot tall ditches up and down. And so it would have been a perfect application for like kill that dude, bite that dude. Like it would have been sweet, but in my head as a, as a professional, I was like, Hey, I, I briefed that I would check this point of contention that is uh, sketchy for detection before we hit the house. So I just let them do their thing on the other side of the objective and like decided not to do that. Um, She's a hard choice, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's it, it, it is right. Like, it's like, who else is going to check out that sketchy spot? Like the, the rifleman? No, you know what I mean? It's, they can ball up the guy like I have to do detection on this problem and, and make sure it's not rigged to blow, you know. Um, so um, but so I didn't have an engagement up until that point with the dog. And so I'm, I'm tailing after this this uh, IR spot in the middle of the village. And it's a ghost town like there's a lot of there's a lot of buildings, but nobody is out because it's the winter. 
and I'm just running through these alleys myself and an EOD guy, like, and we're probably, you know, hundreds of meters from like where the target actually is. And so we get there and, uh, the IR splatter is on this, is on the ground, but there's a tire there. And I'm like, this, this doesn't make sense. And I'm calling and I'm checking like, are you sure? And the right, yep, he went there. And so my team was like, oh, send the dog. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, if I send the dog, right? And in my head, you know, it, it, being, understanding my application and limitations, I'm like, if I send my dog, I have no clue where that hole goes, right? Like, and so I prepped, I put my dog on a long line. I'm like, okay, if he goes and ends up being a, uh, a hole, then I got to be able to fish him back out. You know what I mean? And so... Anyways, uh, we do a call out on it, call out, nothing happens. Well, one of the team leaders threw, threw a concussion grenade and it was miraculously, accidentally beautiful. He throws it and it bing hits the ground and like ski balls right into the hole and lands in the hole and blows up. Boom. Well, we didn't know this, but we go to check and I got my dog prepped and my rifle ready and like, we go to look in the hole and it's like a 60 foot concrete drop engineered, like dry well. And the dude is like outline chalked at the bottom of it dead. Cause he fell. What we found out is that the guy was holding onto the edge until the concussion grenade went off in that concrete like tube <laughs> and he let go and it concussed him and he fell to his death. So I'm like, dang it. I missed out on a bite. Right. I, that's what I'm thinking. And then uh, all of a sudden, we got a radio call that there we got another runner on a different part of the village. And so I left my entire platoon, and I'm like, oh, I'm getting this one. And so I mad dash sprint, you know. And, and this is not even exaggerated. I'm getting radio calls from the platoon sergeant, like my call sign, like, slow down, da-da-da-da-da, let us catch up, you know. And in my head, I'm doing this whole, like, I can't hear you. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. And I'm just, I'm running balls to the wall. Right. And, uh, and so that's where I was like too, you know, too cocky, but I worked out because we get there and there's a garage, a mud garage on the outside of this compound. And they're like, he went in there. So then, uh, you know, I'm calling what I see and, and we had already found suicide vests. So I'm like, is this guy like inside this garage and it's pitch black, right? Like zero loom out is he in here? And then I'm going to walk in here and he's going to blow himself up. You know what I mean? That's what I'm thinking in my head. <clears throat> and so then I get the call, Hey, you know, s send the dog. And so I, I roll up to it, dog on hip. And then I'm like pieing it off and it's pitch black, but I see a Jenga truck. There's a Jenga truck inside of there. You know, for those, the listeners that don't know, it's like basically a truck decked out in like Aladdin bells, right? Like, a whole bunch of accoutrements that are like, you know, ding a ding a ding ding, like all bali, you know, decked out Middle Eastern style, very bohemian. And so I'm like, I think this dude locked himself inside this vehicle, like this Jenga truck that's parked in here, you know, and it's probably, hmm, probably like 14, 15 foot high ceiling. You know, it fits, it fits a Jenga truck. And for people that don't know, it's like, Think of the front half, like the actual semi-truck and not the trailer, right? It's like the front half of a semi-truck uh, and not the trailer that it pulls. It's like parked inside this basically mud garage. 
And so I send my dog, right? And I'm like, boom, send my dog for a search for a man. And he's doing donuts around this, this truck. And I'm like, oh, he, he's got to be in here, I'm thinking. And my dog's like trying to climb up to the door. And then my dog comes back to me. And so I send him again. And my dog runs past the truck. And he jumps over what I thought was the back wall. It was actually it was a six-foot-high fi- six wooden fence that was containing hay. And the hay stacked from floor to ceiling. So, like, as I'm looking at it in the dark, it looks like that's just a wall, right? Because it's zero loom, pitch black. But it's really a fence holding up hay that goes all the way to the ceiling, right? So he jumps over the fence in there, and he climbs to the top of the haystack, right? And then he starts searching, and I can hear, right? You know, at that, by that time, you know your dog, you know, when he's in when he's an odor, what his tails are, his tails are when he's in, um, you know, when he's in drive, when he's in odor. And all of a sudden I just start hearing my dog like be silent and then just like smelling super deep and he does it again. And then my dog just starts digging and mind you, my dog's like 14 feet up, but he's on top of the, the haystack. And so he starts digging like he's digging for moles and then my dog disappears Right, and then all of a sudden, I hear hellacious screaming. I'm like, "Boop, dog on bite!" And so, <laughs> yeah, and so my dog like shimmies him and pulls him out of the hay by his face. And so he pulls the Hodge out by his face, right? And and so um, he pulls him out, and then they're they're fighting up at the top. And I'm like, "I'm not gonna go in there because what if this dude like clacks himself off?" Right? He's just, you know, this is because we already found suicide vests. And the other dude, like, hiding in the, you know, the tube or well or whatever. <clears throat> and so um, I start trying to give instructions to this guy. But then what threw me for a loop is while he's getting bit, he speaks English to me and it threw me for a loop, right? He's like, mister, mister, get your dog off of me, you know, in, in Middle Eastern, like, accent. But it's, like, clear English. And I'd never been talked back in English before during the war. Yeah. So it threw me for like a little psychological loop, you know, because normally it's, you know, Durka Durka. But this was like, Mr. Mr. Get your dog off of me. And for like a half second, I'm like, did I just translate that for him? Or did like, did he <laughs> speak to me in English? Right. And so anyways, so then I'm like, oh, you speak English. No problem. So then I just start cursing at him in English. Like, you MFR, you, like, F you, you come to me. When you bring the dog to me, then I'll take him off. Like, we're just going back and forth, right? Like, no, get him off of me. F you, right? Like, I'm just, and, um, and so by this time, it was, it was, it was a long time. Like, uh, the guy was staying in the haystack, and so he tried to choke my dog. And so he, my dog ends up coming off the face, right? Because there's no, there's not very much flesh there. It's a lot of bones. So there's like, there's not a lot of gratification, right? And so then he came off, and the guy tried choking him. Well, it was there's too much stuff, and I didn't have a, I was I didn't have a comfortable shot. So like, I just let my dog work. I knew he didn't have anything in his hands. So he starts choking him. Well, my dog was like, oh buffet. There's a hand, there's a forearm to my left, and there's a forearm to my right. And so my dog just started going ham on his forearms while he's trying to choke him. He was very unsuccessful at choking him. If anybody's tried to choke a dog from the front, it's not very successful, right? 
Um, yeah. And so <clears throat> it, this bite took what I felt like eternity to the point to where one of the guys like pulled up a thermal to see if he they could see anything under his mam jams like during this whole thing because he wouldn't come out. He's trying to convince me to come in and that when I take the dog off, he'll comply. And I was like standing from the outside. And I'm like, that's not happening, right? Like you will come to me. So eventually he finally comes down and uh, one of the leadership was like, can you out your dog? And I couldn't out my dog because that was like, a, that was a, that was a training scar that he had on like from his previous handler is that um, when they taught the dogs, they taught them a certain way that basically like outing was not an option. Right. And they, they didn't care. So okay. I was like, That's yeah, right. I can't. Huh? Like a choke off or a breaker bar or something. Yeah. But, but outing was like a not an option, right? Like they didn't, they didn't really build that back then into their obedience. It was basically like, if I send you go, I'll figure it out later type of deal. Right. No, they didn't want any, obviously nobody wants a, a failed employment. Right. So it's like, that's priority. And so the leadership was like, can you out him? And I was like, no. So, so then at that time, it was probably like 15 minutes into the, into the bite. Like there's a long, my dog was getting gapped. And so at that point now he's on like ground level with me and out of the garage. And so I go to switch my red laser on my, my visible laser. And I'm yelling at him with a visible laser between his eyes and he's starting to get it. But I'm like, if he's going to clack himself off, then he's going to do it. And so I went and I put my suppressor right on this dude's forehead and I was just going to end it right there. Like that way I didn't shoot my dog or anything like that. And then a friend of mine who was a team leader came out of left field and came in from like out of my peripheral and running haymakered him like running, running full sprint, Superman punched him and knocked him out instead. And so, and so I didn't, uh, I didn't fire and, uh, I was kind of pissed at him <laughs> because it was going to be like a zero contact, like a, a contact shot basically. And so he knocks the guy out, the guy's knocked out on the ground and my dog is like engaging him still. He breaks the dude's forearm, like, uh, he breaks the dude's forearm. And so then they, I take, I, I choke off my dog and then they go to like zip, zip cuff him up. And then he comes like back animated. And so I put my dog back on him, right? Like re-engage him with my dog. And then finally we got him complied and then out. Well, the cool part is, is like after interrogations, the guy got like, you know, we balled him up. And he got interrogated for like weeks, you know, somewhere, somewhere else, like once he got passed along, but he ended up being the target and he was using multiple aliases. And so he was actually the, he was the jackpot and he was the shadow governor for like the area. Okay. And so, uh, you know, we got, we got award because without the dog finding him, then we wouldn't have found him because nobody's, nobody's going to like bayonet 14 feet of like, Hey, you know what yeah. I mean? Like they're just gonna be like, yeah, I don't really see anything, you know what I mean? Like, But because the dog found him, then, um, you know, that secured the jackpot for that objective that where they were hunting for a long time. So and cool. uh, so that was super cool. And um, Did you get yeah, personally that was, written up for that? What's that? Did you get personally written up for that? Yes. Yeah, we did. Awesome. Yeah, so that was super cool. Um, very fulfilling, you know what I mean? And um, 
Yeah, so that, that deployment was super cold, cold winter and uh, did that one. And, and that was the last, the last uh, deployment I did. And then, um, yeah, that, that was in 2012. I wanted to extend and re-enlist, but uh, basically they wouldn't allow me for the next rotation. So that's why I ended up deciding to get out. Yeah. So that's kind of the deployment story. That you go. Yeah, no, she, <laughs> she just got popping in and saying hi. Sweet. Um, we want to be in. So you've done you've done five trips, two dog trips. Yeah. Um, what? So when you get back from your last trip, how soon do you get out? Uh, probably three months. Okay, so, so pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. But you know, we were only back home for um, usually. I want to say eight or nine months before we ripped back out. And so, uh, you know, I was there, you know, kind of halfway through the rotation before, before I got out. And then, um, a few months later they ripped right back out, but I was happy because after that, um, things were getting squirrely, not because of the enemy, but because of like the political, climate and like rules and regulations and uh, so it made it way dangerous way more dangerous for the guys and a lot of guys started getting hurt because of you know those types of rules and I think at that time I, I uh, you know I, I nailed the button on the head and and uh, you know left the poker table without without gambling at all you know yeah and like we had the same thing around that time in the Australian Army particularly special operations the landscape changed a lot, um, very inwardly focused. And we've still got, you know, we've still got some legacy stuff happening yep. around that now. Um, there's a few people hurting pretty bad because um, yep. obviously no charges laid, that type of stuff. So yeah, yeah, are on hold. So, um, so when you get out, what happens to Rex? Where does he go? No, he continues on. He, he continued deploying. He ended up doing, uh, I think, eight total trips. Um, for that dog. So he went through three handlers. I was a second handler, but that dog taught me so much. And, um, you know, before that I wasn't a dog guy, but he made me a dog guy. Um, and so he was our only German shepherd Malinois mix. And, and still today, I think like in, in my heart of hearts, I think like that, that, that mix of breed, uh, at least, as far as he represented was like really cool because you had the drive of the Mali, but you had like just enough wisdom and slowdown of the shepherd, but it didn't hinder his like drive. So it made, you may, it, it just took the edge off of the Mali because he had the shepherd in him. And I think that like that to me, he was like the perfect dog. Now I'm biased. You know what I mean? But I've seen some other Shepherd and Mally mixes and like they share those attributes. Um, and so I thought it was just a really cool combination. Um, yeah, so I got out, he continued to do that and then he ended up retiring to another handler. Um, and that's before that just started to where they started retiring the unit dogs. Um, you know, the Ranger regiment dogs out to their handlers before that they would just go off to, a police agency or a sheriff department and continue working. Wow. Um, 
And so they didn't really have, they didn't really know what to do. Like, okay, these dogs have had so much combat. Like, can they be retired out? Like, can they go live with a, a handler and their families or do whatever? And so they didn't really know. And they started dipping in their toes in the water. Uh, unfortunately for me, they hadn't like figured that out yet. And so, um, that happened after I left. And yeah. so he, you know, he's long, I'm sure he's long gone past by now. You know, he was, by the time I left him in, in 2012, he was, he was six. And so he's, I'm sure he's long gone past, but I got a, I got a, you know, mural of him on in my house. And he was like my first, he was what started it for me. Right. And, um, yeah. then I got out as a, as a civilian and, uh, not very employable <laughs> still didn't know what I want to do college or whatever. So I volunteered at a kennel and I volunteered for, for no pay for a few months until, um, you know, my mentor, uh, who really kind of gave me the opportunity, um, Jeff at Cobra K9, he, I didn't know it, but he had the Navy SEAL contract. And, uh, and so one day he was like, Hey, do you want a job? And I, I was just, I was just a kennel tech at the job at the time, like basically a volunteer kennel tech, um, cleaning kennels, walking dogs, breaking dogs, doing stuff like that. And he's like, you want a job? I was like, yes. And he's like, meet me at the base tomorrow. And I was like, what base? <laughs> and he's like, where? I'm like, why am I meeting you there? And he's like, don't worry about it. Just meet me at the gate. And that, and then we, you know, that day we rolled onto uh, the Navy SEAL compound and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. And in then, uh, you know, Virginia beach was it? Or... Yeah. in Virginia beach. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, I did that for about one or two years. Um, and, uh, and then I was fortunate to, uh, he sent me down to South America. So I lived in Ecuador for about a month, um, by myself with a Guatemalan Terp. And we had like 30 green dogs straight from Holland. And I had like 28 Ecuadorian national police that had to get certified to be detection dog trainers in uh in four weeks and the dogs had to pass certification and it got done and so i was like wow i can go to a different country and i had a guatemalan turp and everybody passed all the dogs certified all the people be uh got certified uh narcotics trainers for detection and um yeah so that opened my eyes and gave me the confidence of like uh i can go to a foreign language and teach this you know what I mean? And um, so then I did shooting instructor for a little bit for special operations as a civilian. And then uh, moved to Florida and eventually started Coastline Canine. And uh, Coastline Canine just started with uh, dog walking. And that's how, we, that's how I started. So dog working, walking turned into clients that were happy that uh, then wanted me to train their dogs. And then all the way up and six, seven years later now, now, uh, now we're at, we're at. Yeah, man, it's, it's awesome to see you succeeding too, like from, uh, military to, you know, aimless, somewhat aimless veteran doing yeah, yeah. an entrepreneur. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's my own journey, bro. So I, I mm -hmm. love when dudes do that. 
just a little rewind. What's what's mm-hmm. your state of mind when you get out of the military, given everything you've done, five deployments, um, mm. deaths of, of friends, close proximity to combat, taking life, things with the dog, institutional yeah. stress, which is which is actually a much bigger stress than people realise. Right. Just run us through um, your mind. So I think my mind when I got out was like, yes, I'm ready to get out, and then I'm like deployment came around and everybody started going on deployment and I was like, shit, I'm not going on deployment. <laughs> right. <miss> cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I miss war stuff. And then so that was an interesting dynamic because you're like, yes, I don't have to deal with all of the, the bureaucratic garrison stuff. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to deal with uniform inspections or getting smoked or doing this or doing that. But then when it's like time for war, you're like, dang it. I'm not going, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a very interesting, interesting state of mind, but, uh, you know, I got out very aimlessly and more like, uh, Oh, how do I feed myself? Right. Like, um, and so I was a little aimless, right. And, uh, you know, at the expense of my first marriage, even though, you know, she was like, Oh, well you have to get out. Otherwise I'm leaving. I can't take this. I get out and six months down the road anyways, right? It's probably inevitable at that point. And uh, so then I was like, hey, mom, like, what do I do? <laughs> right? Like, you, you, you just, you're, you're used to almost uh, living in 24-7 chaos or, or stress, right? Like, there's no more of like, hey, you might get woken up at 2.30 in the morning for a random formation, Right, like th- there's none of that, and so you still are running in your brain, expecting that, like you know, super light sleeping, like all of this other stuff. Not because of the stuff you see, but just naturally, like the stress of the job and the stress of the unit. Like it's it's hard to explain to people that haven't been held to that level of accountability. Or that level of like, you need some cojones to like survive in that type of environment. And I'm not even talking about combat environment. I'm just talking about like uh, being in a special operations unit. You know what I mean? I think um, what you said before, the way you described it as living in a perpetual state of chaos is mm-hmm. probably, I think that's probably an accurate way to put it because. I don't know what it was like for you, but for me in the, in the military, particularly special operations, I was like, can I go on a holiday Christmas? For sure, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Um, am I going to get called up for X, Y, Z? Yeah. You're like, oh, I can't travel 45 miles away from here just in yeah. case we get spun up. Like, okay, so what's my limitations? And you're like, well, like, we can go to the movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, so, and I don't, I don't think people understand that. Um, so yeah, even though it's super chaotic and stressful, the interesting thing I think in my mind is that, uh, it's still organized to the fact that even though it's chaotic, it's all, it's almost, you know, that it's coming. And so it's almost like a guaranteed chaos. And that is what is stable. Like that's, what's constant, uh, consistent. That's the consistency. Yeah. So without that, you're like, okay, yes, there's no stress, but yes, 
uh, I have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow, right? At least with the stress, you're like, okay, like I get it, chaotic, it runs like this, there's these, right? And you understand like that's the part of it in the nature of the beast and it's expected. But when you get out, yes, you don't have chaos, but you have no clue what's happening tomorrow. And that's like, what do you do? And that's in itself stressful, right? And you're, you know, you find yourself, yes, most people, most listeners that are like maybe not military or law enforcement or um, let alone special operations, but it's like um, chaos still has a structure or like an expectancy. So when you get out, you get to this point where you go, uh, oh, like how you're almost like a kid again in the sense of you're like, how do I pay for my mortgage now? Like, you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no for in America, right? There's no uncle Sam. There's no first and 15th paycheck for doing your job. It's literally like, all right, well, either I have to find employment. I got to throw spaghetti at the wall or I got to start selling some stuff to pay for some bills. Right. Um, and it's almost like you're, you're, uh, you're 18 years old again in the sense of, um, you have to figure out, not that you don't know how to do it. You just don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. Right. Like, so while yes, people do that every, you know, every day as a civilian and, and as a business owner or whatever it is, employee. Yes. But it's a little bit different when you're, I think your brain has been, has your neural pathways has been created at, at such a complicated way when your brain was most impressionable from 18 to 25 or, you know, whatever science says. So your brain thinks the exposure, I think to like how you live as a human being or how you survive as a human being is that the, the time from 18 to 25 when your brain's developing and if you're in combat or special operations at that point, your brain has an unrealistic map of how the of how things are. And then when you get out and it's not that way, that becomes stressful because um, how your brain was cultivated is uh, at a one operates at an unrealistic pace, meaning it 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 unrealistically produces uh, dopamine, endorphins, right, testosterone, like all this stuff that is overkill for the most part. For like when you get out and that train stops, but your brain has been patterned in a way of that's how the world works, and that takes some like readjusting and remolding your brain when it was formatted that way, it's such like the most impressionable point in your development. Yeah, dude, I'll, um, I, I like the way you describe that talking about when you're most impressionable and then you're forming mm. different neural pathways. I think at least what you're describing, I think what it would do, it would make you more, if you adapt to it, it'd make mm. you more psychologically flexible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because you're, your your normality is uh, indoctrinated, like high level problem solving and stressing, and so your brain becomes super elastic at problem solving. But 
Um, so that is good. And I think that that is like the that is probably this the superhero strength that I think is very applicable for a lot of special operations veterans that if they can tap into that and that if they can apply their confidence in problem solving, that when they get out, they'll be more fruitful because their brain is already so elastic and chaotic problem solving. Uh, but I think the key there is having confidence in um, decision make decision making. Um, and, and I think that's very much needed. But like you said, I think that is to the benefit is that at the most impressionable development of your brain, your brain has been overexposed to um, insane levels of like primitive problem solving, right? You either die or you don't die, right? Like, or, or you know what I mean? And so where a lot of people don't have to have that and they're kind of like eased into uh, you know, problem solving. Um, I think when you're in, in that level, your brain probably fast, fast tracks in not over development, but it, uh, it expedites what I think is what takes 10 or 15 years of some people to like kind of collectively have life experience and it just preloads it and goes, you either problem solve at this level and you do it and you're getting released and endorphins and dopamines and highs and lows in your brain, like is like a muscle, right? Like it just starts building and building. And then in that impressionable stage, your brain has a lot of experience or probably more experience at problem solving. And so I think that if you can tap into that, that becomes like the, the X factor for transitioning veterans, if they can tap into that and have confidence in going, well, whatever I run into, like I'm still alive. So I'm probably, my, I probably have uh, adapted pretty good at problem solving and then confidently take that step in whatever it is, whether it's starting a business, making equipment, going to school, applying for a job, doing whatever. And I think where veterans get in trouble is when they start self-doubting their problem-solving problem-solving ability and then mm, they use that overexposure as a crutch as opposed to a uh as an x factor i guess you kind of answered my next question i was going to ask (laughs) it's good because i I, I want to dig into that just a little bit more before we finish Mm -hmm. up i was going to ask you if have you adapted to like a new level of peace when you've since you've left or have you yeah taken that psychologically flexible mindset and then applied it to your life. But it sounds like that's yes. So both, right? Like, um, I guess I find peace, but I I think sometimes it's to my crutch because if, if anybody knows me, like they, they ask me all the time, like, uh, and this is not like a tap on my shoulder, but I get this a lot. Like people ask like, where do where do you get your patience from, right? But I feel like how I'm, the perspective and how I look through life is just, is is somebody going to die? No? Okay. 
you can put that to the side. Right. Like, all right. And that, that like makes me go, not that I have time per se, but, um, I start looking at things from a more calculative point of view, as opposed to like, uh, I have to, sh I have to shoot from the hip. Otherwise game over. Like you can take a moment and now make a calculated chess move versus a super like erratic one maybe. Mm. Um, but also taking that problem solving ability, you know, when you're, when you're in that capacity and your brain is done, naturally you've done a lot of backwards planning, right? Reverse engineering. Okay. How do we plan exfil actions on target infill? Like, okay, well, how do we backwards pack? How do we backwards plan for traveling? Right? Like all it's just, I'm just naming some like little wave top bullet points that everybody's accustomed to worst case scenarios, right? Secondary uh, initial courses of action, secondary course of actions, tertiary. So I think your brain, um, if you can reverse and look at problems and reverse engineer them, as you've kind of been formatted and you've done so many reps of it, and whether that's packing or high level execution of targets or training, then whenever I get a problem and from a business point of view, whether that's a legal problem, whether that's a, uh, uh, a bill problem, an overhead problem, an employee problem, a systems problem, a manufacturing problem, whether it's, um, whatever it is, if you can take a moment and realize, Hey, this is a first world problem. I have a second, right? I have a second to calculate. And if I have a second to calculate, well, let me start reverse engineering. If I can reverse engineer this, then I can probably problem solve it. If I can problem solve it, that means I have more information than when I started. And when people freak out, it's because they have a lack of intel, like on whatever it is, whether they, they, they size the problem wrong or they don't know how to achieve it. So in the same way with animals, right? And you're talking about like, oh, Australia, and it'll kill you and spiders and sharks and saltwater crocodiles and stuff like that. Well, I look at the same way when it comes to business or dog training is the same. It's like, I see all these documentaries about Australia and I see people snark snorkeling with saltwater crocodiles and with great white sharks. But what's the difference between the person that's watching the TV and the person that's swimming with the shark and like counting the colors on its fin and naming it Bobby and going, Oh, we haven't seen Susan for two seasons. And they're like, this is my favorite shark taking pictures of it out the cage. Well, the difference is, is that that photographer, that Marine biologist has all the Intel in the world around that species, what it's going to do, when it's going to do it, what its behavior patterns are. So the difference between the one that's like swimming with the sharks and it looks like they have no fear. Well, they've gathered so much intel that their fear is pushed to the side because I feel like fear is fear is literally just the absence of intel. Right? So uh that's like the difference between somebody who's like deathly afraid of shark and someone that like puts on fins and a mask and a swimsuit and goes photograph sharks outside the cage. Well, it's just, they have that, they have all that Intel. 
So whenever problems come around, it goes, okay, why does this like make me feel a certain way? Well, it's because I don't have, I haven't reverse engineered it and I don't have intel about the, about the issue or about the problem or about the hiccup or, or about the information. So very much like you, right? Like you, you're telling me briefly like, oh, well you, you kind of off the hit. You guys got a flight out to Chacha, right? Or, or to the U.S. Well, there's a little bit of reverse engineering, and you're like, okay, when is the event? Right? You didn't start with, uh, do I have money in the bank account, and then where do I find flights? Right? Like you're like, okay, well, when's the event? Okay, this is the event. This is the city it's located. Okay, well, how do we get in? All right. Well, we got to get this credentials. We got to put on this website, and then. It, and then I'm sure the last thing you were like was, I don't know, I, I could be wrong. But then you're like, okay, cool. Are there any flights? Yeah, flights. Cool. Okay, well, which airport? And then you just reverse engineer it. And then you go, all right, well, we have the major moving pieces. We know what time it is. We know we can get in. And we know that we can get there. So we'll figure everything else out on the way because those are the biggest pieces of the intel. And so I think if, if you don't... Uh, people get stuck is because they don't just look at it and go, all right, well, this, this is not a, uh, or they think that this is a boogeyman or it's a monster or it's impossible. It's because they don't, <clears throat> they don't take the two seconds to gather the intel and reverse engineer the problem. And so they feel because they can't make the first step, right? Then all is lost. And like, I don't know how to achieve the first step. But um, they're problem solving it wrong. But naturally, if you just apply how we've been taught or trained and what you've done in problem solving, like there's literally no issue is an actual issue. And most of them are just first world problems that you don't have all the intel to. Yeah. And that's, that's how I like, that's how I navigate. And so through that, that's kind of my perspective on a lot of life is like, Nobody's dying. It's a first world problem. And I just don't have all the intel on it yet. And then once I gather the intel, boom, I'll swim with the shark. Yeah. I like that, man. Yeah. And, th and that lucky what you were saying before about the, the shot show or, or with your business or, mm -hmm. you know, going to Ranger Regiment, for example, mm -hmm. just I've got the mission. I know exactly what I want to achieve. That's what you focus on. And then the rest of it, you know, Put, put the macro movements in place, 80% solution, and then just go. You'll work it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll work it out. I love it, man. Um, so I think that's just, you know, what I see is some people don't implement that, and that's where I think they get in trouble. But um, if you just, at least my, my experience, if you go, hey, it's, it's just a first world problem, okay, gather intel and then reverse engineer it, or reverse engineer it to get the intel so that you can make the actual first actionable step, but people get bogged down because they don't have the intel to make the first step. And so they think all is lost. Yeah. Right? It's probably like starting tactile. You're like, Oh man, I gotta have, um, manufacturing. I gotta, I gotta have all this in place when really it's like, Hey, I want to make some stuff. Okay. I need some material. Okay. At least I got some of that. Let me start working that out. And then later you go, okay, systems. Uh, then you go, okay, seamstress and then you go okay then the website right like 
but people get stuck with like, I think, um, just going, I don't have all the information, so I'm super stressed out and I, I quit or I stop or I don't try. Or they're, yeah, they're afraid to make the decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think, like I said from the beginning, it's like, I think afraid to make decisions is because you don't have, you haven't problem solved and you haven't figured out what intel to gather. That's it. That's all. That's what I, in my head, I think that's all fear is. You just don't have enough information about it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that perspective, dude. Eric, mate, I'm going to let you get to bed, bro. It is much later there than it is here, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. Sounds good. And your, your missus is uh, <laughs> knocking at the door, probably. No, nah, she's just stopping in to say hi. Thank you, mate. Yeah, sweet. That's all. Um, hey, dude, anything else you want to finish up with, man? Like about what you're doing currently with your life? What's planned for the future? Um, Not really. Uh, um. Yeah, I mean, we're just growing the company and uh, making it more professional, bringing more talent on, uh, aligning. Um, this year is a lot of aligning with uh, other companies that we built relationships over the years, and um, you know, making using our training and our dogs to make their their products visible and and stuff like that. And uh, that now that we've built what I think is a good reputation in the industry and at least in our country, and um, just trying to bring on more talent, delegate stuff, and hold a higher standard um, than we have in the past few years. And uh, YouTube will be getting set up, and we'll start putting out more professional uh, edited content and just next-level stuff. And we plan to go more international this year. Um, you know, the last two years, we did two, two trips to Europe. Um, so it'd be interesting to use the dog training to – um, travel more, right? I've been in South America through dogs. Now I need to do uh, Middle East, not in conflict. Africa <laughs> would be cool. Asia would be cool. And then uh, Australia would be cool as well. And so start doing that that type of stuff. Yeah, awesome, so, dude. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's so, it's so good to see you succeeding, dude. I mean, that's, that's a hectic career you had, bro. So, um, like I said, I love watching guys get out, guys and gals getting out of the military. And then like what you were saying, use that, you know, psychologically flexible living in perpetual chaos thing to then go and make something of yourself. So, um, mm-hmm. mate, c- congrats mm-hmm. on being an, ultra- an awesome entrepreneur, bro. I love seeing it, man. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. And, and, and you as well. I know thanks, you're getting after it. So <laughs> Tr- trying, bro. We're trying our hardest. Yep. And, um, yeah, the biggest thanks, man, is for giving me your time, bro. Um, I always tell my guests, like, your time's your most valuable asset, bro. So the fact that you've given me so much of your time is uh, definitely not lost to me, bro, and I appreciate it. No, of course. If any way we can, uh, we can help you guys out, then just let us know. We can provide any value to uh, you, your company, your yourself outside of the company, or any of your um, any of your followers or anything like that. Awesome. Be and a, uh, be a stateside resource for you. If my listeners want to find you, where are they going to find you, bro? Yeah, so they can find us, bro. We're most active usually on, on Instagram. So that's uh, at Coastline, C-O-A-S-T-L-I-N-E underscore, and then letter K number nine. Um, so we're typically on there, right? People like content. Um, and then website is, is just www.com 
coastlinecanine.com. Pretty simple, standard. Awesome, dude. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes too with a link that'll go directly to your Instagram, directly to your site as well. Ah, oh, super cool. Appreciate it. Easy. All right, dude, I'm going to press the stop recording button, but we'll still be on the video chat. All right, sounds that good. Sounds good. The guy just Thank hung you. up and I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Easy. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Catch you later. Thank you for listening to the show and we hope it inspired you to be better and live at your potential. Stay tuned for our next episode or check out our range of tactical canine equipment at www.origincanine.com.